Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for speaking to us through your word, your word written and your word incarnate in Jesus Christ. By your Holy Spirit, open our ears and our eyes to see, to hear what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I'm going to preach from our epistle reading, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And in this chapter, the first chapter of Ephesians, Paul is reminding Christians of their identity in Christ and the great value of our identity in Christ, the great value of being a Christian. Now, since this is Mother's Day, I'm well aware of that, I want to start my sermon by uh, reminding us of the value of motherhood. You can't really put a price on motherhood, but there are uh, websites dedicated to doing just that. There's a website called salary.com. It comes up with an annual survey. Maybe you've seen this. Uh, that, that says, uh, here is the price for, uh, here is the value monetarily of motherhood. They've divided motherhood up into ten categories. Motherly duties. Uh, daycare teacher. Supervisor. Psychologist. Cook. Housekeeper. This one my wife can really relate to. Laundry machine operator. (laughs) It's just going continually at our house. Computer operator, facility, janitor, van driver, you get the point. Now the question is, how much would it cost a family if they had to outsource those duties? Well, according to this survey, this is a while back, but this is 2012, the average stay-at-home mom should make an annual salary of $112,962. So, my wife wants a raise. Uh, the average working mom, just for her mom duties, the average working mom would, would earn a salary of about $67,000. So, the article, article concludes that the breadth of a mom's responsibility is beyond what most workers could ever experience day to day. Well, so, we are, um, obviously, on Mother's Day, part of what we do is we celebrate the value of motherhood. And uh, that's a segue, although it's uh, admittedly a pretty weak segue, into what I want to talk about here, which is the Apostle Paul reminding us of the value of being in Christ, the value of being united to Christ by faith. And this is what he wants to get across to these Ephesians and to us. He, He wants their eyes to be opened to see how great it is that they are united to Christ by faith. He says that he is praying for them. Verse 18, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. I like the way the New Living Bible puts that. Uh, It says, flooded with light. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be flooded with spiritual light so that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? That's the first thing I want to point out. We have great value as Christians because of the hope that we have in Christ. And Paul says that there's a glorious inheritance for the saints. I want you to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. The Apostle Paul also says in Romans 8, 8.17, now if we are children, he's talking about children of God, the previous verse he said that we're children of God, and he says, now if you are a child of God, 
then you are an heir, an heir of an inheritance, an heir of God and a co-heir with Jesus Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, that's the catch, if we share with his sufferings in order that we may share in his glory. So this is a theme in the apostles' writing that um, as Christians, yes, we suffer. We live in a fallen world, but we suffer in a different way than those who are outside of Christ. In, in Romans 8, he reminds us that we can have a share in the suffering of Christ if we go through suffering looking to Christ. We can have something of a fellowship with Christ even in the midst of our suffering, but suffering is not the last word for the Christian. We have hope beyond this life. If we are united with Christ who died and who rose again and who ascended into heaven, as we read this morning, he's seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, well, then we have hope because where he is, we will be. And that's the hope that we have as Christians. We have a glorious future ahead of us. I sometimes quote this poem. It's one of the poems that, one of these things that I sort of remind myself of, encourage myself with this little poem. It says, uh, speaking about uh, life after this life, it goes like this. My knowledge of that life is small. My faith is sometimes dim. But it is enough that Christ is all. And I shall be with him. My knowledge of that life is small. My faith is sometimes dim. It's enough that Christ is all. And I will be with him. And so that is what Paul is reminding these Ephesians. Of the hope to which they've been called the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints. I think we need to remind ourselves of that as Christians living in the West, in our modern culture particularly this culture, which really just says this life is all there is. The best life that you can have is the life that you have now. So just enjoy it, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And that's it. And I think sometimes as Christians, we can be influenced. That, that began to shape our thinking and our emotions. And we can even become a little bit embarrassed about thinking about heaven and eternity. Oh, that's something that our forefathers did, but does it have relevance to us today? Yes, it has great relevance. It means that we have hope beyond this life. Uh, the French philosopher uh, Blaise Pascal had his famous wager. And he said, oh, it makes sense rationally to think about eternity and to bet on Jesus Christ. He said, um, if you bet on Jesus and you're wrong, what have you lost? Because he said, if you, if you follow Jesus in this mortal life, at the very least, you're going to have a better life. You'll be a more moral person. You'll, 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 you'll strive to be more trustworthy and more loving if you're seeking to follow Jesus. And if you bet on Jesus in eternity and you're wrong, well, at least you've lived a good life or you've tried to live a good life. And then he says, if you bet on Jesus and you're right, then you've gained heaven. Not only have you lived a good life on this earth, but you've gained heaven. But if you bet against Christ and you bet against eternity and you're wrong, then you're eternally lost. And that's the gravity of the situation. 
And so Pascal said it just makes rational sense to bet on Christ. If you have an inkling, just an inkling that what the Word of God says is true, then you ought to, rationally, you ought to trust in Christ. It's in your best interest to do so. Well, it's not foolish to, to take these things seriously and to take this hope seriously. The person of Christ, the promise of eternity, the promise of a glorious future, the hope of glory that Paul is writing about here in Ephesians 1. I read in a biography of Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones about one of his parishioners that died. This man um, became a Christian just three years before he passed away, and he died of double pneumonia. And uh, he was an old man who um, the community sort of... the gathered around or knew at least about his final moments because they lived in a small mining town, one of the small mining villages in Wales. And here's an account of how this, this saint passed away. His name was William Thomas. This is a true account. William Thomas, it says, was far away somewhere but responded to greeting and prayer. He was obviously at perfect peace. And all the evidence of the old sinful life were uh, all the evidences of the old sinful life were smoothed out of a new childlike face. The minutes passed and became an hour, and then more. And then suddenly, the painful sound of difficult breathing seemed to stop. The old man's face was transformed, a light, radiant. He sat up eagerly with outstretched arms and a beautiful smile on his face as though he were welcoming his best friend. And with that, he was gone. It says, gone to a land of pure delight where saints in mortal reign. What a testimony. I mean, that doesn't happen, obviously, in every case. But it makes a difference to die with the hope of glory. And that's a testimony to that. So that's a great value of being in Christ. Let us pray. Let's join with the prayer of Paul and say, Lord, would you open my eyes to see this hope? For myself. I am united to Christ by faith. So open my eyes, my spiritual eyes, that I might see this hope that I have and appreciate it and let that animate my life now until the very end. And then Paul reminds us of the great value of spiritual power that we have in Christ. So we have hope for the future which animates our life now, and we have access to great spiritual authority even now. Let's look at what he says in verse 19. So he's praying for them that their eyes would be open to these spiritual truths and realities. And then he says, I'm praying that, that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. We'll stop right there. What Paul is trying to do, he's just piling on imagery and synonyms to try to convey the great power that a Christian has by being united to Jesus Christ. Immeasurable greatness. Uh, the word there for greatness is, is a word we get our word mega from. Megathos. Mega, immeasurable greatness of Jesus' power. The very word power has a sense of, it conveys a sense of, of, of dynamite. We get our word dynamos from this Greek word power. And then he says, uh, the working of his great might. And that particular word might in Greek has the connotation, it's, it's the image of a conquering 
general or ruler who vanquishes the enemy. And so Paul here is just trying to convey with this imagery the great power that we have in Jesus Christ and he caps it off by reminding his readers that this is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. This is resurrection power. This is power that raises a man who'd been dead for three days from the grave. And he says, this power is available to us in this life now. He says that Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God and now is seated, verse 20, at his right hand in the heavenly places. So you know that to be at the right hand of somebody in the ancient world, to be at the right hand of a king, was to be in a place of great power and authority, a place of delegated authority and power. Even today we talk about so-and-so's right-hand man. This is somebody who's privy to what the leader is doing and has delegated authority that he can exercise on behalf of the leader or the ruler. And and Paul is saying this is where Jesus is is, is at right now. He is at the right hand of the greatest power and authority of the universe. That is, the right hand of God Almighty. And he can exercise that power on behalf of the saints. It's an amazing thing to to think about and to believe and then to begin to walk in. To look to Christ for power. Spiritual power. Um. There's a flow in the book of Ephesians on this theme. There's a logical flow in the book of Ephesians on this theme of spiritual power and spiritual warfare. I mean, this is Ephesians, and Ephesians chapter 6 is a famous chapter on spiritual warfare. We wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and principalities and powers and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, in the heavenly places. So this is a major theme in the book of Ephesians, this idea of spiritual battle and spiritual authority. And the flow of the argument goes like this. Um, And this is uh, from Richard Foster in one of his books. He talks about this concept of spiritual authority as it relates to Ephesians. And he says this. First of all, you get Ephesians chapter 1, which talks about what we've seen here, Christ's heavenly position of authority at the right hand of God. Ephesians 1. Then you get to Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2.6 talks about our position as believers in Christ. We are, spiritually speaking, ascended with Christ in the heavenly places. That's Ephesians chapter 2. And then Ephesians chapter 6 is our ability to wage warfare, spiritual warfare, against principalities and powers because of our positional authority with Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Jesus is in the highest place of authority. Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, we are united to Christ by faith and therefore we are connected to that authority. This is delegated authority. And then Ephesians 6, because of that position of spiritual power, we can stand in the battle with the authority of Christ behind us. And so uh, one of the things that we want to remind ourselves, one of the ways in which we want to own our identity as Christians, is to ask God to open our eyes to the power that's available to us, spiritually speaking, because of our union with Christ. Open my eyes to the spiritual power available to me. When I was a boy, I spent a lot of uh, time on my grandparents' farm. 
they were uh, mainly they, they had uh, wheat and corn, plants mainly, but they also had cows. And so they had a, an electric fence. They actually had an electric wire that ran across the fence. And my grandpa would tell me a lot, don't touch that wire. Then he would say, you know, be careful of that wire. Well, I don't remember how exactly it happened. <laughs> but it happened one day. I don't know if it was there. I don't know if I was just curious. I don't, I don't know if I just got uh, careless. But I do remember when it happened. When I touched that wire, it was no longer, no longer theoretical. Because <laughs> I experienced that power. From the top of my head to the, the bottom of my feet. And, uh, and that changed my behavior <laughs> around that wire, around that fence. I think sometimes as Christians we can be like that. We are told about the power of Christ. We read about the power of Christ. But do we really believe it's ours? If we're united with Christ, it's ours. And do we draw on that? Do, does it change the way we think? You see, if you don't really believe that you have access to but if you begin to take this seriously, yes, there is spiritual power in Christ. It makes a difference. It makes a difference. It, it makes a difference to know that, you know what, I don't have to live in bondage to anxiety and fear. That doesn't have to rule my heart. I don't have to live shackled to addictions and compulsive behavior. If I'm a Christian, there's access to spiritual power there. I've seen that in pastoral ministry. I've dealt with people who have been dealing with things for decades. And then this message sinks into their heart and they come into the pastoral office or they get some Christians around them to pray. It doesn't always happen instantaneously. But they began to believe that they have power now. They're not helpless because they're in Christ. And it begins to make a difference in their life. And sometimes I've seen... It happened almost instantaneously. And other times it's a process of gathering with a group of people and, and claiming that power in Christ and walking with one another. But it makes such a difference. There's power. There, there's power to help us grow in our character as Christians. There's power to help us grow in sanctification, in Christ-likeness. Yes, we live in a fallen world. Yes, we're at battle. Be, you know, we, we are in, in the midst of a spiritual battle between uh, good and evil. We battle ourselves. We battle the world. We battle spiritual forces of evil. But there is also power in the midst of the battle. And that's what Paul wants to remind these Ephesians. Because you know, they were living in a context. I don't know if you're aware, but in first century Ephesus, there was a temple to the goddess Artemis. And it was one of the wonders of the ancient world, this temple. And everybody kind of knew that this was, this was a big part of Ephesian life and culture. I mean, we in St. Louis, we have the arch. They had this temple that sort of overshadowed everything. Everybody knew about it. And they were, you know, the, the goddess Artemis was something to be feared, according to their pagan ideology. They believed that, that she was the goddess of the underworld that she was in control of the spirits of nature, that she somehow had influence with the spirit, the, the astral powers. Astrology was very strong in first century. 
And astrology today is a, is a survival of pagan religion. We shouldn't have anything to do with it as Christians. Astrology or any sort of trying to contact spirits. This is all pagan religion and it's dark and we shouldn't have anything to do with it as Christians. But this was the context they were living in in first century Ephesus. And pagan religion was all about and is all about trying to manipulate spirits so that they don't control you. It's motivated by fear. And so you try to ward off the evil spirits, you know, through incantations. Uh, Paul talks about here uh, in verse 21, he says, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. Now the scholars I've read said that really speaks to the Ephesian context because those terms, rulers, authorities, powers, dominions, were terms that were used in occultic and magic texts in the first century to refer to these spirits. You see, he's saying these things that are named in your text that you're familiar with coming out of paganism, there's a power that is greater than those things. And it's Jesus, the name above every name. He's in the place of highest authority. So you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid anymore of those lesser powers. Appropriate the power that's available to you. So I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, you know, sometimes as Christians we have an identity problem, a self-image problem, and we need to stand in the identity that's been given to us in Jesus Christ. And part of that is appropriating this power spiritually. If you feel caught in the grip of a dark force, of a spiritual power, of a compulsion, then pray for whatever that is to submit to the name of Jesus Christ. Stand in that authority and power. Gather Christians around you who will pray, who understand this idea of spiritual authority and power. There are people in this congregation who understand this quite well. I can refer you to them. But pray against these things in the name of Jesus. Sometimes it's a process. Sometimes the power of God breaks in in an instantaneous way but there is power available for Christians. So we have great hope. Let's remind ourselves of our value as Christians. Mother's Day, we remember the great value of motherhood. Today, let's remember the great value of being in Christ. We have a glorious future, and there's incredible spiritual power available for us in the name of Jesus. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are the risen and ascended Lord. The ascension is more than just a mysterious and miraculous event. It is the foundation of, of your spiritual power and authority because you are seated now at the right hand. And so we thank you, Lord, for your power. And we thank you for your promises. And we pray, as the Apostle Paul prayed, that our eyes would be opened, that our eyes would be flooded with spiritual light to see these truths, and that we'd be willing to share them with others as a crisis, God. Help us to walk in our identity as Christians. I pray in Jesus' holy name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen.